Good deal. Wow. Fantastic, guys. Really wonderful. Really wonderful. And we have the um, we have the status of being the church with female singers with the deepest voices in the world, which is a, a great blessing to all of us. So today we're going to start a whole new series that's going to take us all the way up to Christmas. But it's a series that's broken up by really uh, different phases of this series because we're going to be looking at the way in which story is described, is developed, is revealed in Holy Scripture. The hero's journey is a pattern, a picture, a structure that is so ingrained in the way that we think that it's become almost too familiar to us. And so we find it perhaps difficult to understand why we enjoy certain things. So for instance, I've talked to lots of people who say that they love Top Gun, Top Gun Maverick, the most recent movie. Anybody want to see that? And you know, I mean, there's, um, there's Mr. Cruz. He, he's got, you know, big biceps and He's got a nice smile. He's a good actor. But, you know, there's lots of people with big biceps and nice smiles and who are good. I mean, you know, why, why this movie? Why does everybody like this movie? Well, because this movie follows the classic structure of a hero's journey with a, with a sense of calling. Maverick gets called back to Top Gun as one of the instructors. In the midst of the calling, there is this, there's this valley moment when the challenge to the hero and the hero's friends becomes extreme, and you're not sure whether they're going to make it. I mean, that was fascinating for me. I'm looking at it thinking, I don't know, is it one of these movies where the hero dies, or is it the one that kind of squeaks through at the end? And, you know, you're kind of watching, everybody's on the edge of their seat, and they're not quite sure. And then there's the completion where you see the blessings, the, the boon, the benefit of going through the struggle, going through the challenge, going through the valley, fighting the necessary battles and seeing the great victory at the end. This structure of call, challenge, completion is what you find in every great story, every great book, every great movie. In fact, in everything that you like a lot, you'll find the hero's journey. So if you like music, I like music, I love it. I'm a muso, I spend a lot of time listening to music. If you listen carefully to what it is that's being presented, you'll find a hero's journey. I love Chris Stapleton at the moment from the kind of world of country. And world of country just means basically every kind of song as long as it's got a banjo or a violin in it. I mean, yeah, who knows what country is anymore. Country has become this thing now. This is me just musing on musicology. Country has become this thing now where it's meta-country. Because the songs are about country songs. Has anybody noticed that? Just recently, that song, Damn Straight, 
I know you're not allowed to say stuff like that in church, but I just did. <laughs> By, uh, is it Scotty McCreary? You're the guy who won uh, American Idol. Yeah. So, you know, you, and it's, a, it's a country song about, a country song is about another, you know, it's kind of, and then there's the one, um, um, Heads Carolina, Tails California. You remember that one, you know? She's a, what is it? She's a 90s country fan, like I am. Um, <laughs> Obviously, the hook is awesome. Um, and then there's all kinds of other ones that probably ought not to be demonstrated here on a Sunday morning. So I love all that, and I love Chris Stapleton. Went to see him just recently. Um, he was the headline act just ahead of the Doobie Brothers. Doobie Brothers, for those of you who are under the age of 80, were a band <laughs> that were huge way back when. And uh, Chris, you know, he's got lots of different songs. Um, one of the songs that kind of really hooked me was um, Daddy Doesn't Pray Anymore, about the story of his father's faith, and now he's gone to heaven. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. I like, um, I like Harry Styles. I've been listening a lot to him. I like Billie Eilish. I've been listening to a lot to her. Harry Styles' uh, new album is an amazing album. Of course, he's the number one artist here in America right now. And the illustrious company of Prince and Eminem is that he is the number one artist with the number one movie at the same moment. So he's pretty good, this guy. And there's a beautiful song on there. If you get a chance to listen to his newest album, um, I think it's called Harry's House, uh, called Matilda, about a girl who's suffered abuse in the past. Amazing. Amazing. Makes me, whew, you know, just think about it now. So, um, so music, movies. I don't really do video games anymore because I'm, you know, old. And, um, but I, you know, I, League, of, uh, League of Legends and Call of Duty, I watch the kind of the, the movie version of those and love them. All of them, every single thing that I just mentioned to you there is a hero's journey. It has a call, it has a challenge, and it has a completion. And this, this structure to the story of life was first fully articulated by a man called Joseph Campbell just after the Second World War when lots of writers and thinkers and philosophers we're trying to make sense of the world that had just struggled free from two catastrophic world wars. Within 20 years, the First World War was followed by the Second World War, and just horrible, awful destruction on every corner of the planet was suffered and observed by everyone. And the thinkers were beginning to say, are there ways in which we can understand this story of life, the texture of life? Is there a way that we can understand what it is that, that makes us continue to have hope? Are there things that help us to navigate life, that, that are written deep into the DNA of every human being, so that we can find ways to encourage one another? A group of, a group of men who became called the Inklings began to think it through, a man called C.S. Lewis, John Tolkien, Charles Williams. They met in a pub that I've been to on many occasions in Oxford called 
the eagle and child. And there you can go to the pub, by the, by the fireplace, you can see where those three great minds sat, reading to one another their most recent little literature. And um, it's an amazing thought that these people were beginning to design a way of thinking and writing that, that, really, that really built a foundation of hope and continuity for a world that would become catastrophically challenged by the emergence of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And what they did, these men, though at the time people didn't realize it, was to go into the narratives of Scripture and begin to reflect on them deeply and write stories like Narnia, The Lord of the Rings. And as they did that, they connected deeply with people in their sense of who they were. And as they did that, they gave people a sense of hopefulness, a sense of, of anticipated joy. Because so many people were jettison, jettisoning their faith and leaving the churches, they, they had this task, this calling, to share the biblical narrative in a way that people could receive and embrace it. And pretty much all science fiction, all fantasy literature, and literally every single video game would not exist as it does without the Inklings. Just think about that. It's astonishing, isn't it? And it was a reflection on Scripture. Because the most ancient and complete record of the hero's journey is found not in the ancient documents of faraway cultures, but is found in the Bible. And if we, if we dig into the stories of the Bible and begin to get down to the granular detail, we'll begin to understand why is it that we think the way we do? Why is it that we want good things for our children? Why is it that there is this longing in our hearts for something better, for something more significant? Why is it that our lives are the way that they are, and even with the challenges that we've faced collectively and individually, we still have this hopefulness? What is it about us? Well, it's the way that God's made us, of course, but the way that God's made us is echoed and reflected in the stories of our history, collectively as humanity. The, the things that are most important to us are echoed and reflected in our art and in our literature. And as that art and literature is, is reflected in our culture, it echoes with the Scriptures the deepest things of life. The Bible, of course, is the most important piece of literature anywhere in the world at any time. But sometimes we say that and we're not quite sure why it's true. But here's one reason why it's true. Here in Scripture is the repository of the structure of life that everyone longs for and looks to. And so we're going to look at the characters of the Scriptures 
And we're going to begin to understand what it is that motivated them. What is it that drove them? What is it that, that made them the people that they were? These women and men of faith. These women and men who, like those who are being interviewed today, Mike and Doris, they, they had a deep connection and conversation with the Lord. And in that conversation with the Lord, they were, over, they were able to hear his call. They were able to recognize their weaknesses and their frailties. And in the midst of those frailties and weaknesses, they were still able to go through the valley of challenge and come out the other side and see victory. Now, my guess is that as you face your life, your week, your context, you want to see breakthrough. You want to see good things. You want to see the Lord changing you and others around you. You want to see the blessings and the benefits that are spoken of in Scripture time and time again. Well, if you're not going to do it accidentally, but are going to learn to do it intentionally, you need to hear carefully what it is that I'll be sharing with you in these coming weeks. It doesn't matter your culture. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your social status or your income or your bank balance. This that we'll be sharing in the coming weeks is written so deeply into the very fabric of every human that this will set you on a course of intentional action that will see the great things that God wants you to, to experience. And you'll see them with your eyes open and your hearts ready. So let's turn to the scriptures and let's read from Genesis chapter 12. I've still got my Burl Ives voice this week, you've noticed. I think it's kind of cool. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan and arrived there. And then it goes on to say that as Abraham arrived in the land that God had revealed to him and promised to him, he built an altar. And as he built an altar, he worshipped the Lord and he made it a permanent remembrance of what it was that God had done. And then we see the unfolding story. We see Abraham recognizing that famine is coming to the land. It's the promised land, of course, but it's still subject to the changes of weather and conditions, and, and famine was upon the land. And so he moved to Egypt, as so many people in those days did. You have to find water. You have to find fertility. You have to find a place where food can easily be grown and gathered. So he goes to Egypt. And as he goes to Egypt, he says to his wife, Sarah, he says, now, I know you're beautiful. Most days you know you're beautiful. 
And everybody around us is going to think, if we kill Abraham, we can have Sarai. So I want you to say, you're my sister. She said, what? He said, I, you know, I, I don't want it to kind of get tricky. So, you know, everybody's kind of struggling right now. So when we go down there, maybe you could just say, I'm, I'm your brother. And she's, okay. Well, Pharaoh uh, hears that she's his brother. She's his sister. And um, begins to court her. And then discovers that she's married. And pulls Abraham on one side and says, what gives, brother? And he said, well, you know, I'm kind of scared and trying to protect myself and my family. Oh, okay, well, get out of here because we don't want you around anymore. So off he goes. He then finds himself so prosperous, so wealthy, so well set that he and Lot and their herdsmen are competing over the same land, over the same property. And so he says to Lot, hey, how about you just find another spot in the promised land? And Lot says, sure, I'll take the best. And Abraham says, okay. So he takes the best. And so we have a story of a person who's not this plaster saint. He's not a a two-dimensional superhero. He's a person with real depth, with real vulnerabilities, and with real failures and weaknesses. Abraham is a man who's given to indulgence. Just before we read the story today, we discover that there's a kind of indulgence of his father, Terah. They're all going to the promised land, but when they get to the city of Haran, they think, well, this looks good. This looks fine. Why don't we stay here? A bit like the people who were the pioneers who wanted to go west and then got to Kansas City and said, maybe this is far enough west as we need to go. And so, and so Haran became the stopping off place. Terah dies. The Lord kind of clears his throat and says, um, do you remember? Um, he says, oh, okay, yeah, okay. This is a really, really interesting character. He indulges his leaders and his elders and betters. He indulges his need for preservation. He indulges those who are following him, who within the social fabric are lower down the totem pole than he is, Lot, his nephew. He indulges him as as a parent would indulge a child. And here, here we have the first example of what it means for us as heroes, whether we be male or female, us as heroes of our own hero's journey, of our own story, here we see the first example of what it means to put the call in threat. Abraham has been promised something. Abraham has been called into something. And the biggest threat to him seeing it and recognizing it being fulfilled 
is not all of the enemies around him, is not the lack of resources that he might discover along the way. The biggest threat is himself. Perhaps we should look more deeply at the call. And then in understanding the call and the benefits of the call, perhaps we'll understand more clearly why this threat to the call is so significant. Go back to the beginning of chapter 12. The Lord says to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. Now, that sounds to me like Abraham and Sarai and their immediate relationships are supposed to go someplace. And they're supposed to go someplace without anyone else. Yeah? You're supposed to leave your father's household. Now, these are the, these are the necessary securities that people carry with them. But the Lord says, I want you to do this and to go on this exploration and to fulfill all of your desires for curiosity, but I want you to do it without the familiar props of, of relational security that you've relied on in the past. Leave your father's household. That means you leave Lot. Yeah? And what did he do? So Abraham left, verse 4, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Well, that sounds great, except that Lot is a pain in the neck for the rest of the story. I mean, he's like, he's like a millstone round Abraham's neck. And he gives him the best of the land because it's the only way he can get rid of him. So here's a question. The Lord has called you both generally and specifically into a blessing. Generally, he's called you as a child of God to represent him in the world and to make disciples that look like Jesus, his son, as you become more and more like Jesus, his son. So that's the general call on all of us. But then there's a specific call. Some of you are called to be married. Some of you are called to have children. Some of you are called to have particular jobs. Maybe you work at the base. Maybe you work in, in medicine. Maybe you work in industry. Maybe you work in commerce or retail. That, that place that you live and function is to be a place where the influence of the living God brings good things to the people around you. The companies that you work for are supposed to be benefited by your presence. The organizations that you're part of are, are supposed to be blessed by your influence and by the way in which God will work in you and through you. And it's not just a kind of a hopeful promise. This is a calling. This is the call of the living God upon his children to represent him in every part of their life. But he wants you to do it so that it's you and him. Not you and him and then all the other people who make you feel good. So are you going to hear the call? And are you going to focus and embrace the call in such a way that the principal relationship in your life is the Lord himself? 
That's your big question today. I know you're married. I know you've got best friends. I know you've got children. But do you want your children to be blessed by God through you, or do you want your children to be blessed by you through you? Well, do you want your children to be blessed by God through you? Or do you want your children to be blessed by you through you? Because here's the thing. If you are not connected to the flow of blessing because you have not made God the principal relationship in your life, then the best that the people around you can get is the trickle and the dribble of blessing that might squeak out. But if, of course, your spouse, your children, your best friends encounter you connected deeply to the fountainhead of grace, then of course they're going to be blessed more because your your fountainhead of grace is way smaller than that of God's. In fact, you don't have one. Anybody hearing me? It's amazing. I mean, you know, I've been in the job a long time. It's amazing. I've spoken to thousands and thousands of people. And the number of people who fully believe that it's justified to put other people before their relationship with God is breathtaking. Well, she's my wife. I know. So does God. Do you want her blessed by him or by you, you nit? (laughs) How much blessing do you have? You're right. Not a lot. Of course you have children. Do you want God to bless them? Do you want the conduit of grace to be flowing from him to them? Because it's your calling. It's the destiny on your life. And so, of course, if the channel is open and if the flow is constant, their lives will be blessed way more than in the cases where none of that's true. This is so important. Because, you see, Abraham was doing the wrong thing for the right reason. It's a good thing to honor your elders. It's a good thing to honor the people around you. But the good thing of honoring his father created a bad thing by him hanging around in Haran. Because he did what his dad told him to do instead of what God told him to do. And of course, survival, you know, is a basic human instinct. And if you're in a world of famine, you know, the realities of survival are going to be brought home to you. So he goes to Egypt, and he thinks, I don't know, I think we probably have to come up with a strategy here so that we all get out of here alive. 
And so that's a good thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that. But it creates a behavior that is dependent upon him. And so instead of going to the Lord and saying, Lord, it feels like it's a bit tricky right now. I'm not sure whether we're going to make it. Instead of that, he comes up with a whole plan. It's a good thing to survive into the next day so that you can serve the Lord. Of course it is. But if you do it by stepping into the new day without the Lord, it isn't. Likewise, of course, it's absolutely correct for you to serve your spouse, to sacrifice on behalf of your children, but not so that you surrender the thing that God's called you to do. No, we don't go to church anymore because the children don't like it. Excuse me? What planet are you living on? Well, you know, my spouse finds it kind of challenging and so we just don't go. Really? Okay. Well, it's going to get way more challenging. I can guarantee it. Why is it going to get more challenging? Because here, listen. Either you have resources available to share with the people that are closest to you, or you don't. Where do you get those resources? From the Lord. How do you get those resources? Well, he's got unlimited supplies of them, but here's the thing. He's given us free will so that we can choose to access them or not. So it's not a matter of church growth. It's about spiritual health. Honestly, I don't care whether you go to church or not. It's of absolutely no relevance to me at all, except down through the centuries, millions upon millions of Christians have discovered that if they gather with other believers for worship and word, they access the resources of heaven and then they can share them with other people. You with me? It's not about going to church. It's not about whether you turn up on time or whether you like the sermons. It's got nothing to do with that. It's to do with the familiar patterns of connecting with the reservoir of grace. And how come you think that you've come up with a better plan than all of the other Christians down through the centuries? I mean, who do you think you are? It's funny when you say it out loud, isn't it? Oh no, I've got a better plan. I know that there are millions, in fact billions, who've gone before me, who've recognized the importance of these things, but they're not important to me. Okay, well, it's going to be interesting to see how that all turns out. The subtle indulgences are the biggest threat to receiving the benefit of the call. The subtle indulgences 
are the biggest threat to receiving the benefit of the call. And all it requires is just a little bit of discipline. Just a little bit of discipline. Just enough to show up where God might be. Just enough to turn up to the prayer meeting where God might be. Just enough to be in places where people have been connected to the conduit of grace long before you in a deeper way than perhaps you currently experience. And you'll learn stuff. You'll receive stuff. Of course you will. So the call, my goodness, it's so important. The call for Abraham was a call to a land, was a call to a destiny, was a call to an identity. I'll make your name great, says the Lord. I'll give you a land that will be yours in perpetuity for all of your people, and you will be a blessing to others. Now, in the very fabric of that word, blessing, berakah in, in Hebrew, is the key to understanding everything I've said to you this morning. It's an ancient root that goes way back into the Semitic languages. And it's a word picture. A word picture that for people who lived in dry and desert places was an amazing understanding of life. Because this word, translated into English, blessings, the plural, the word picture is this, a pool in the desert that is overflowing with water. A pool in the desert that is overflowing with water. Just think of that. You, you live in a desert landscape. And God says, your life is going to be so much like a pool in the desert overflowing with water that, of course, you're going to know the blessing of that. But wherever the water overflows, it will bless those people too. Isn't that amazing? I used to live in the desert in, uh, in Arizona, and one of my most joyful things would be to take my mountain bike and go out into the desert and uh, see whether I could survive and then get back again. And, uh, you know, sometimes I came back bloodied and bruised because, you know, I'd fallen down a crevasse of some kind and hit a choya cactus. And I came back one time so covered in cactus spines that it was so powerful that they actually penetrated my nails when I came off the bike. Because you generally ride bikes with fingerless gloves, you know. So I'm way out there. I didn't take my cell phone. And so I've got blood oozing from every part of my body. And I came into the house, and Sally greeted me in the way that you would expect your spouse of 30-something years. You've lived with and loved all that time. She said, you stupid idiot. <laughs> and of course, she's right. And I just said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> all my clothes are all torn, and there's blood coming from her. She said, oh, 
She said, it's going to take weeks to get that stuff out of you. And out there in the desert, I'd find all kinds of amazing things. So one of the things that I used to go and look for, is I'd look for tiny meteorite craters. Because, of course, it's a, a barren landscape riding around. And just every so often, you'd find a, a fairly fresh crater. And the thing must have been just this minuscule, you know, grain of sand. But it's, it's the kind of the classic meteorite location, crater. All the bushes would be burned around it. It's great fun. And then on other occasions, I'd go and look for sources of water. And I remember one time just being stunned. I went through a deep defile into a gully. And as I went into the gully, I was just shocked to see that the vegetation had become really quite lush. And as I pressed through the vegetation, there in the middle of the desert, is a beautiful, crystal clear pool. And of course, what was happening was that the water table being exposed by the elements as they cut into the ancient rock had created this gully in such a way that the, that the, the water below the surface was now at the surface. And livestock and and wildlife and lush vegetation was everywhere. It was amazing. And I looked at that and I thought, that's what God meant when he spoke to Abraham. You don't have to do anything, you know, if you're a pool of water in the desert. People will just gather to you. Yeah? And if the water's actually available, then people will hang around and stay. And they might be your spouse, they may be your kids, they may be your neighbors, they may be anybody. And so here's the thing. In the call of Abraham, who at the beginning of the story is called Abraham, we'll get onto that a bit later on maybe in the, in the journey. In the call of Abraham, there is this foundational truth that God has called you to be blessed. To be blessed. And in being blessed, to discover the unfathomable riches of His grace that mean that you have way too much for yourself and enough to share. So this morning, as we consider these things, I'd ask you, by way of invitation, have you considered this day the blessings that God has stored up for you? And are you this day embracing, opening your arms and life to the blessings that God wants for you? Because I can absolutely guarantee that there are more than you've already experienced. Are you open to that today? Are you ready for that today? And by way of challenge, are you prepared to set aside the small indulgences that are the big threat to receiving all of the benefits of your call? Now, it could be that those indulgences are being created 
by circumstances that you feel are overwhelming. It could be that, like me, when you feel sick, you feel like the whole world's against you and you hate the world. And so you tend to fall back into your indulgences in those times. When you have those challenges, when you have those struggles, when, when your life doesn't feel as though it's kind of adding up in the way that you want it to, that's the time to press in and say, Lord, circumstances are overwhelming me and they're preventing me from seeing and embracing the, the vision of the blessing. They're preventing me from embracing and receiving the reality of the blessing today. I'm struggling with this sickness, this illness, this malady. And it seems so prominent that it's taking all of my time and energy. And, and because of that, Lord, I, I don't seem to be able to set it on one side and to receive the grace that you have for me, whether it's grace for healing or whatever. Lord, the children are such pains right now that every day of my life, there's a couple of amens over here, <laughs> that every day of my life feels overwhelming because the needs of others are constantly pressing in on me and I just don't feel the blessing today. Why do we have ministry time at the end of worship? Because we're human beings, that's why. Human beings get overwhelmed. Human beings have needs. And we bring those needs and we bring those things that overwhelm us so that we can give them to Jesus. This is the transaction that Jesus says. He says, bring me your burdens, I'll give you rest. That's a pretty good transaction, isn't it? Bring me your burdens, I'll give you rest. And the point of it is this. The conduit of blessing is opened again. And all that God wants us to receive for ourselves and for the circumstances that overwhelm us are now flowing again. Personally, I think that's awesome. Let's pray together.